Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Actually, quite a lot of strong language. Also, this episode's reading contains themes of war and imperialism, and if that's not something you want to hang with right now, that's perfectly fine. Uh, Just skip ahead 17 minutes from the start of the reading, and you'll get right through it, and then it'll be back to the rest of the episode. that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisnets. Listeners, it is my absolute delight today to welcome an author, a game streamer, a podcaster, all around just phenomenal person, Mike Underwood. Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I, have, I have been hearing about the show probably since close to when it started from various <laughs> friends um, speaking about it. And the it's a very cool concept, so uh, I'm oh, glad that it's, it's something that's been kind of worth your time to, to keep doing, because I know how uh, fulfilling podcasting can be from my end. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's my favorite thing that I've been doing in the last, now uh, this is the fourth year of doing it, and like, uh, it makes it a lot easier that I'm not writing as much as I sometimes feel like I should be. Sure. Uh, because I, I don't know, there's like, I have feelings about self-publishing and the quote-unquote gatekeepers and all sorts of things, but like, podcasting is just, I have a microphone, I have audacity, I can make a podcast. Yeah, and uh, even if the Atlantic or the New York Times rediscovers uh, podcasts every, you know, 18 months or so, like, mm-hmm. we're all still here just making making things for people to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, podcasts have also, in the pandemic, been a huge source of joy for me, especially, um, actually, one that I don't know if you turned me on to or if my spouse found independently at around the same time but uh friends at the table is like my comfort show right now yeah it's uh i partisan was the first season i listened through all the way um Mm -hmm. just because of vagaries and it's really fun because the a show i'm starting and gming in june uh we're kind of taking a page from friends at the table in using a world building game at the beginning to do setting construction among the players. uh, And then we're gonna dive into another system. Um, So like that, that was so great in Marielda and then they've kind of iterated on it in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, It's really fun because I think they approach storytelling in that medium in a way that's fairly distinct. At least I've not found a lot of other shows that do it that way that aren't explicitly inspired by Friends of the Table. Like, there's mm-hmm. this was like, you know, uh, this got us into actual play. I'm like, yeah, okay, in that case, you're, you're intentionally drawing influence. But yeah. um, 
it seems like it's it's a fairly a distinct like mimetic uh, spoke within the the field. It is, yeah. I mean, you know, the current season of the Adventure Zone even specifically played the Quiet Year yeah. because of Friends at the Table. Like, if you can get the McElroys into it, when you know, by some by some people's estimations, they kind of popularized the genre in the podcast space. Like. If you can get the McElroys to do it, you're winning. Yeah, and they um, they seem to have like an absolutely great time playing the the Quiet Year. So I'm really yeah. hoping that either travel or whatever will give them more leeway to feel like they can explore games um, that are mm-hmm. kind of in similar or similarly distinct spaces. Yeah, I also just love the Quiet Year and like it's that whole space of like world building games and and you know gmless games has really uh brought a lot to me during this pan- bleh, during this pandemic yeah the the kind of journaling game solo game lyrical games all of those have really flourished and i've not put the time into investigating them it's mm-hmm. fun that we're well past the point where a dedicated RPG person could play every game. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it happened maybe a couple decades later than it happened in English language science fiction fantasy prose. Um, mm-hmm. But it's so great to be in the middle of what feels like such a generative um, era for, you know, kind of both of the industries that I work in, in terms yeah. of um, TTRPG as a kind of actual play person and as a, a science fiction author. Which yeah, for sure. Then that yeah. means that you have to do the um, which books have we read in common conversation <laughs> when you're ch- checking in with a colleague because there's so many different things to read. Yeah, I was just at uh, a meetup for trans nerds over the weekend in the city and uh, ended up sitting for a while with a bunch of other RPG people. And it was, you know, very much a like, have you played this? No, I haven't. Have you played this? Very cool. I I have to imagine that Thirsty Sword Lesbians is like rippling across uh, mm-hmm. various queer gaming spheres, like a uh, um, like a like a heavy metal riff. Uh, yeah, wonderful fashion. Yeah. Um, I I definitely want to just continue talking RPGs the whole time with you, uh, but I do think that we should uh, get into the Broken Summit first. Is there anything we need to know about it going into this reading? Yeah, so this is like a science fiction political thriller is the is the vibe. So um, there's kind of references to violence and war um, okay. in the section that we have. I don't think there's a lot of other stuff, but if we come across something, I'll make sure to like get you some notes so that we can get that into the show notes. And, uh, Perfect. Yeah. And uh, I will make sure at the start of the show, you will have already heard a note of when to skip to if you don't want to hear the story. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start from just from the first chapter. So this is The Broken Summit. The portal emerged from behind a high rise, a sliver of wild color ten stories tall set against the shattered Macau Tower and the ruins of old downtown. The Mm. convention center holding the summit was as close to the portal as had been possible without evicting thousands from their homes. 
on top of those already relocated to create a security radius. Alexia had seen three of the portals so far, New York, Nairobi, and now Macau. They were each imperceptibly different. If someone sat her down in front of an easel and told her to paint the three, she wasn't sure she could show the differences, but she knew somewhere in her hindbrain that they were there, something in the Mm. patterns of light as they rippled across the plains. The van hit a speed bump and the whole world jostled around her. Alexia held onto the door, hoping that the techs had secured everything correctly. The cost of the materiel in their van was more than her yearly salary. The city around her was a melting pot, with architecture on display from six centuries, a dozen cultures, and seven different worlds. They passed neatly stacked, craggy, adobe-esque, oversized homes in the Ignean neighborhood, followed by honeycombed warrens belonging to the Gurren. Alexia Haddad took it all in through the van window, the stark juxtapositions showing how truly small the world had become. Hmm. Hundreds of years ago, Macau was the port of call for Portuguese traders, kept off the mainland by China trying to limit foreign influence. The city acquired the in-between feel of a border town, no longer solely Chinese, but never fully Western. It stood in Hong Kong's shadow in politics, media, and history. But when the portals opened in Macau and a dozen other sites around the world, that all changed. Macau was transformed again, but this time it wasn't Europeans stepping onto their shores. The visitors came instead from six different worlds, from the familiar to the truly alien. They came first with curiosity, and then with rage, and then with fire. A third of the city had been burned down in the human Ignean War, and still bore scars from those fights to this day. Alexia turned back from the window to see her partner Oz studying his sleep. The voice of Special Agent Deanna Benson, their team lead, came over the earpieces. Lambda team, come in. This is HQ. Lambda team, en route, HQ, Alexia said. Vasquez says you're 10 minutes out. Let's go over the briefing again. That was the United Nations Dimensional Security Force way. There wasn't a briefing so simple that it didn't get reviewed three times. Alexia took comfort in the repetition, in plotting out every step, every possibility. An already complicated world had gotten endlessly messier when the portals opened, and it was her job to keep order. Alexia called up the briefing on her slate. Benson took an audible breath and started running through their schedule. The screen showed a highly militarized checkpoint flying the colors of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. You're scheduled to arrive at 0800, where you will check in with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, find your rooms, and set up your local command and control. The image shifted to a cozy-looking hotel room with a low ceiling. Several faces of the furred Gurren overlaid the image, showing the leaders of the delegation. 0900, you will meet with the Gurren delegation, review their schedule, and address any concerns or questions that they have. Given the Gurren's class structure, you will present yourself uh, and make a gift of greeting and then make their acquaintance. In order to operate at the level you need, they need to declare you to be cousins of the third circle or greater. Just having run exercises with the security won't cut it. Alexia Mm. broke into Benson's litany, but we don't want to get to be closer than cousins of the first circle. Then their people will start taking bullets for us. Oz raised an eyebrow, questioning Alexia's interruption. Benson liked being interrupted about as much as a mama bear liked humans poking her cubs with sticks. Thank you, Agent Haddad, Benson said. We've all read the xenoanthropological briefing. 
Alexia stretched in her seat, trying to find something resembling comfort, stuffed in with weapons, computers, cameras, and the 15 million other items they need to keep their off-world charges safe and avert another interdimensional war. From 1000 to 1400, you will accompany the Gurren delegation during the opening reception. The slate showed a huge ballroom with dozens of computer-generated figures from all seven worlds. The convention center will start to fill up, so you'll need to stick together tighter with your charges. Step up your crowd scanning. SCO has point on general security, but no team of mine is going to laze about like they're on holiday. Understood? Yes, ma'am, they both said. The SCO were the official hosts of the event, and they had final say on large-scale security measures. But it was the job of the United Nations Dimensional Security Force, and therefore Alexia, to keep the off-world visitors safe in portal cities and around the worlds. The SCO got prestige from hosting the event and from working closely with the UNDSF. But in addition to doing each of their jobs, the two organizations had to present a united front so that Earth looked like it had its shit together far more than it really did. <laughs> Benson continued as the headshots for delegates and other VIPs scrolled vertically along the side of Alexia's slate. Each headshot linked to a dossier, which she'd memorized on the flight over. This will be a high-profile event, so you'll need to be ready to pivot on a dime between being completely unobtrusive when the Gurren are in private talks and being highly visible when we need to make a show of strength. Stick to your training. This is a liaison detail as well as security. You've been picked for your cultural knowledge and social skills, so impress me. Hmm. Voss's co- voice cut into the feed. She sounded as caffeinated as ever. And remember that you have to take tea with the Gura to show your courtesy as early as possible to respect the newfound friendship. Oz nodded at Yaz- Voss's comment. Both Alexia and Oz had grown up studying off-world cultures, and Alexia took the study of social norms, like a seal to the Antarctic. But Voss hmm. took off-world trivia to an obsessive degree. Benson took back the line. Ancient Vasquez is correct, definitely before the keynote speech. Mr. Zhang likes to hold a room captive. Assuming Mr. Zhang stays on schedule, reception will finish at 1400, at which point you will escort the current delegation back to their rooms and remain with them through the evening as they take personal appointments. You'll defer to this Gurren security team when in the designated apartments, but one of you will stay with them through 2200 when you will retire on site HQ for the pass down. Understood? Yes, ma'am, they said again in practice unison. GPS shows you approaching the convention center. Keep your eyes open and don't do anything to embarrass me. <laughs> Alexi reviewed the delegation briefings as they made their way through Macau's morning rush hour. To her left, she saw hundreds of bicycles hurrying past the bumper-to-bumper traffic, then imagined UNDSF agents on bikes, each with a hundred-pound bag strapped to their backs, sweating through their suits. The van was slower, but less preposterous. Their driver said, Coming up on the checkpoint now. The crowd outside the checkpoint was made out of at least a dozen factions. The sea of protesters and onlookers stretched from the high fence as far back as she could see. The crowd were mainly humans, but there were some from every people. The huge rock-like Igneans, the reptilian Noom, lowercase fey of all stripes, trolls, kappa, shen, and more. The nearly human Segni, and a few of the furred Gurren and Kesht. Lots of Kesht, actually. Alexia saw a cluster of nearly a hundred refugees from the ruined ice world, holding banners and posters aloft calling for revenge, recompense, or merely recognition. Kesht was the greatest failure of the Seven Worlds so far, and Alexia had no doubt that it would be on everyone's minds, even though the world had not been granted an official delegation. 
That's a lot of cash, Alexia said. Oz scanned the crowd and nodded. Not surprising, considering they don't even get a space at the table this year. The cash had failed to fulfill the development criteria the previous summit had set forth, and were therefore relegated to observer status instead of participants. Mm. But considering that the criteria had been nearly impossible given the limited population and resources of the few remaining members of the species, mostly living in Antarctica, the Keshtet's anger was understandable. Among the crowds were religious protesters of all stripes, calling for complete isolationism here, installing the off-worlders as our rulers over there, and everything in between. The political situation between the worlds was a powder keg. The first summit had achieved nothing. But the fact that no one blew each other up was considered a victory. Last year's summit had led to several resolutions, normalizing travel protocols, stabilizing currency exchange systems, and a dozen smaller matters. But now, with a major incident between the Noom and the Segni over a water rights agreement that had claimed dozens of lives, and frequent protests by the various Kesht refugee groups, the whole summit was on a knife's edge. Hmm. Alexia pointed outside with a thumb. There go our chances of a boring week. <laughs> I don't think those chances were good to start, Lex. Oz managed to twinge at the side of his mouth, which in Oz world was about the same as a full tooth smile. She took what she could get. <laughs> this week was likely to be short on laughs and long on headaches. Their UNDSF badges got them waved past security checkpoints, but the visiting media had to go through magnetic and mana scans, equipment checks, and pat downs. Alexia and Oz wheeled <laughs> their cart of gear into the Macau Convention Center 200,000 square feet of possible interdimensional incidents. The center was still mostly empty, with a small handful of SCO, UNDSF, off-worlder security, and a few early bird members of the Miodia, already snapping shots and live reporting. Alexia saw a trio of Ignean soldiers staring down a surprisingly unfazed SCO officer. The Chinese guard seemed to have forgotten or decided to ignore the fact that the Igneans were three feet taller and several hundred pounds heavier than she was. Igneans were by far the largest of the peoples of the Seven Worlds, averaging seven to eight feet tall and topping out at 700 pounds of rocky muscle. They didn't have to breathe and could shrug off heavy machine gun fire. They were, rightly, the number one ranked species in the UNDSF threat assessment matrix. Alexia tried not to let her glare show as they carted by the tension, heading through the high-ceilinged corridor on their way to the quarters assigned to the detail. She didn't know what she'd have done if she'd been assigned to the Igneans. Benson would have never been that foolish, since she knew Alexia's history. But in a bureaucracy that big, sometimes common sense was sacrificed on the altar of expediency. They, they took the first right and walked by another half-mile past dozens of meeting rooms, through a small open area with a handful of tables and chairs, then through another hallway until they got to the ambassadorial quarters. Alexia and Oz were berthed directly next to the Gurren delegation, with an adjoining door. Oz stopped the cart in front of their room and pulled out his key fob to wave it over the sensor. The panel lit up green, and he nudged it open. The room was pleasant, but fairly plain. The directions were inoffensive earth tones, brown and gray, and the dark red-brown of turned soil. Two beds, a wall panel interface, and a full bathroom. Only one desk, but they'd make two. With a practiced hand, they'd unpack their equipment. They had cameras, weapons, and the tremendously expensive Dr. Satchel, a mobile surgical machine that would be remotely controlled. UNDSF and SCO had medical staff on hand, and each people was bringing their own doctors, but 
Dr. Satchel was the ultimate in medical telepresence, allowing the UN's top doctors to respond to emergencies around the world in real time. Alexia pulled out her pair of GGs, which still looked like the future. They had magnifying lenses that took her vision to 2015, but their main function came from the satellite phone connection and the display. She found the HUD annoying, even after hundreds of hours of training, but there's only so much one can do when text is scrolling right in front of your eyeballs. But the UNDSF tech division was gaga over these things, so Alexia got to deal. When they had everything set up, Alexia checked her weapons again, despite the fact that they'd checked them before they left UNDSF Macau. They were coming in light, but that didn't mean they were unarmed. She locked a fresh battery into her taser, tucked it into the inside breast pocket of her suit coat. Her 9mm pistol went in the underarmed holster, and the expanding baton went on her belt beside her phone. They had mobile adaptive riot gear and a suitcase with smart gel harnesses, non-lethal deterrents, and extending plastic shields. God save us if it doesn't come to that, she thought. The whole of Earth and five more worlds beyond it would be watching the summit, and if things broke the wrong way, it could mean another war. You'll just have to make sure it doesn't fail then, won't you? She told herself. Alexia's hand unconsciously went to her sternum, where the necklace her father had given her rusted under her shirt, beside her translator stone. Mm. She couldn't save the summit through force of will, but she was part of a team, and if they all did their jobs, then it was up to the ambassadors to maintain the lasting peace. When everything was in its place, Alexia looked up to see Oz, who sat at attention at the desk, his eyes flashing over the screen. Haven't you memorized everything yet? She teased. If there was a spare moment where Oz wasn't reading or exercising, she hadn't seen it. Six delegations, one observer group, dozens of security personnel, 25 media, and 50 consultants? I started two weeks ago, and I'm still wrapping my head around it all. Alexia picked up her slate on the way and kicked its stand out to set it next to Oz's. She opened the personnel dossier and held out her hand to the 3D sensor interface. The screen displayed a headshot of Gawo Manai, the head of the Gurren delegation. She was an elder, her fur on fine and white, a hint of gray remaining at her brow. What's got you stuck? Alexia asked. Oz scrolled past Gawo and the rest of the Gurren delegation and kept going. The delegates I've got, it's the guests in the security team that are throwing me. I wanted to get all of their face down before the reception so I could pin down somebody not on the list. Alexia nodded. She'd been memorizing guest lists since she was five. Came with the territory as an ambassador's daughter. Oz kept scrolling and stopped when the presentation flow gave a title page of guests. The trick is to tag something from their name to their face like a mnemonic or a short story. Oz paged through the mm -hmm. faces and names then stopped. Like this one. I can't tell the keshed apart unless the markings are really clear. The screen showed a keshed with white fur. Uh, that's Drekthra, Alexia said, pointing at his left eye. You can tell the, by the patch of white gray hair. And, she, uh, and small for the keshed, fairly thin. Any other keshed will defer to her. Oz scrolled back until the screen showed an Ignean with a wide face and thin, sculpted lips. And this one? That's Akan Adkro Roka, the bard. Their faces wider than the other Ignians, and they're shorter than Ganon and Krano. Oz nodded thoughtfully. Mm. Good thing I'll have you in my ear on this. Alexia clapped Oz on the shoulder. Even sitting, he was nearly as tall as she was standing. I'll handle the state dinners, and you stay on your feet in case something goes down. Alexia pulled on the collar of her yellow shirt. I don't want to get blood on this shirt. It's imported. Oz cracked an honest-to-goodness half-smile for that one. The shirt came from Express, like the rest of her professional clothes. She saved the expensive stuff for family events, since if she reported for duty wearing a $400 shirt, 
Benson would do her best to ensure that it did get bloodied. Benson was working class <laughs> through and through. Anything that gave off the whiff of aristocracy was suspect. After a few more minutes of going over names and faces, Alexia and Oz's phones buzzed in unison. Time to go, and don't flip about the social grooming. It's a sign of trust. <laughs> oh, that's delightful. Uh, I... So, uh, the, like, the first novel that I wrote ever, which is not great, had some, has some really great ideas in it, but, uh, is also, like, a sort of science fiction political thriller slash, uh, adventure book, and so I, like, I, I have a soft spot for political thrillers in general, like, I, you know, spent a very large amount of my adolescence reading, you know, Tom Clancy books right, and sure. other problematic jingoist fiction like that. But there's just something that, you know, gets me going about yeah, that. When, when I was working at Angry Robot, there was a crime imprint for like two and a half years or so. And I'd not really read many mm -hmm. um, thrillers that weren't also science fiction or fantasy. And it was really fun to, to read stuff because, you know, that line ranged from detective stuff of a few different types um, through to thriller. Mm -hmm. And a few of the books that were like straight up thrillers, they had pacing like a metronome. It just went doom, doom, mm -hmm. doom, ever forward. And the really good ones, everything was always moving forward, but it's because there were several different wheels all spinning. And so a conflict would come up from this plot, a conflict would come up from that plot. Mm -hmm. um, and they were really a big inspiration for this, um, which was a, a partial that I wrote to pitch to editors probably around 2015, 2016. And just mm -hmm. because of the vagaries of publishing, uh, I have 10,000 words of this and I just have not done anything else with it. Hey, that's fair. That is how publishing do sometimes. Yeah, but... And I mean, you know, you worked at Angry Robot, so you have uh, kind of an insider's view in some ways. Yeah, I think... Well, I, I know that I learned a lot. My understanding of publishing from the inside is now... Um, like, that understanding is aging because it's now been a few mm -hmm. years since I worked on the staff side. But so right. it, I picked up so many skills and my view of the field I think has been uh, forever changed by spending a lot of time on the inside and um, mm -hmm. I think it's mostly for the best but something that has been hard is seeing from the publisher side what it looks like when a publisher puts everything they have behind a book and going mm -hmm. you know you change a few things and you could do that for every book you publish mm -hmm. and then most publishers just don't. Yeah. Yeah, there's... Um, I'm not going to say every writer has, you know, a big circle of writer friends, but just by the way that I know most of the writers I know, like, we all have these, you know, shared circles, and it's, it's sometimes kind of saddening to, like, hear the scuttlebutt and know, like, oh, this... The publisher just didn't put their all behind this book and like 
you know, there are books that I absolutely love that got almost zero publisher support, and I'm not going to, you know, call any of them out here, but uh, it, it really, it kind of reminds me of, in some ways of like doing a small independent podcast where it's like, okay, you know, I do have, technically I have, you know, iTunes distribution, I have Spotify, all of that, but like, it's, it's all from, you know, the people I know telling the people they know, like, oh, hey, check this out. Yeah, because something that I've tried to, like, share where I can in terms of, like, talking about the industry is I think that there's a fair number of writers that just don't know really what, mm-hmm. what any of what happens to make a book a big deal. Because uh, mm-hmm. before I worked at Angry Robot, I was a traveling sales rep. So I was one of the people Mm -hmm. that, you know, drive around the Midwest and go to dozens of bookstores and present the same, you know, 800 something titles over and over and over again um, and try to Mm -hmm. try to match books and trends and subgenres and regional like inclinations to, you know, Mm -hmm. more sales is good for the company that I was working for. More sales of books that then the bookstore can sell is good for them. And mm-hmm. like, if you don't have a sales team, then okay, you're missing out on having probably between a half dozen and twenty, probably more like a dozen for the most part. I like Penguin Random House has some of the, the biggest, most robust sales teams, but they're Penguin Random House, mm-hmm. um, so it's understandable that they've got all these people. Right. Um, but yeah, like just the fact that you've got, you know, ideally. 10 to maybe a dozen highly trained sales professionals that know their store, they know their territory, they have relationships with the booksellers, and they, you know, ideally believe in the books that they're representing so that then mm-hmm. you get that magnification. And traditional publishing, when it works right, is like those um do you have the like the hot wheels tracks as a kid where they have the little um things that do acceleration Mm -hmm. good publishing is like that but like seven of them in a row Mm -hmm. where the author's enthusiasm goes into the text then the agent's enthusiasm goes to the editor goes to the sales team goes to the bookseller goes to the reader yeah i i definitely you know i have never worked in sales but every time i go to a bookstore i love to talk to the you know the booksellers there and just be like okay what are you super excited about and let me tell you what i'm super excited about there was there was somebody who i sold some bookseller who i sold uh oh i can't remember now Oh, it was uh, it was Valerie Valdez's first oh, that book. book. Is wonderful, and Valerie's a friend. It but is the amazing. book is wonderful. I'm not that biased. It's yeah. just very good. Uh, and I, I, you know, there was like one copy of it in the bookstore. I already had my copy, but I was just like walking past it uh, when a bookseller walked by, and I was like, "Have you read this book? I think." you should check this book out and you know it's it's that sort of i mean you know i I do it a lot of the time because like these are my friends but even if it's like authors who i don't know if i'm just like super excited like i would love to be friends with yoon ha lee that so far hasn't materialized i'm going to sell yoon's books 
every single chance I get. Yeah, it's like there's you know, probably 17 different ways that you can justify that behavior in terms of like, it does good for this, it does good for that. Also, it's just fun to get to share enthusiasm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if you're enthusiastic about a thing and you don't have really anybody to share it with, um, that can be a big bummer. But enthusiasm mm-hmm. shared, like, tends to be, you know, uh, two plus two is five type of type of stuff. Right, yeah. And I think for me, one of the things that tells me I really love a book is when I can't help but want to talk to people about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's not necessarily everything's, like, sometimes nonfiction stuff. It's like, you know, it's more internal or, you know, that's kind of, that can happen for fiction as well. But... Uh, one of the things that I like most about being a, a working writer and getting stuff um, in advance to consider for blurbing is that I get the fun of being one of a small number mm-hmm. of people being like, have you read this? It's really great. It's coming out in a few months, so you can't read it just yet, but maybe you can talk to the pub- uh, the publicist, uh, somebody over there, but definitely get this for your bookstore and let me shout about how great it is. Um, getting mm-hmm. to... Uh, be a, a big fan for work of colleagues, especially work of colleagues who are like just trying to break in and don't already have like mm-hmm. an established fan base of readers. It's like, oh, that's me. I'm the fan base of readers. Yeah. Yeah, for real. And that's like, I think I think that's one of my favorite things to do is like, you know, I... I uh, I started this show with Sarah Gailey coming on and like, let's see, that was 2019. So River of Teeth and Taste of Marrow were out at that point, but like uh, Magic for Liars hadn't come out yet. And like, you know, I I think mostly people knew them as like the person who wrote the hippo books as opposed to like, you know, Sarah Gailey. Sarah also made some some internet hay um, watching Star Wars. Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah. I did. I remember coming back from Christmas break that year, and one of my coworkers was a big Star Wars head, and was like, "Did you see this?" And I was like, "See this? I know them." <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Because I think Gailey had been doing a lot of work, and then several things mm-hmm. converged all at once in terms of like novellas hitting and great nonfiction work and stories over here and just like yeah the kind of perfect storm that's very hard to manufacture uh, but i have to imagine was at least partially due to the fact that they were working their ass off yeah yes absolutely they like we've been friends for i don't remember how long at this point time is fake and they are always on their grind and it is like awe-inspiring and then every once in a while it's just like oh burned out yeah i get that i am also burned out yeah uh, um it's, it's that is tricky because the publishing industry does not love us mm-hmm. corporations are not people they're extra not people and that they do not care about humans and you know yeah. so you know, a bunch of people who many of whom i have to imagine have like deeply seated memories and dreams about books and writing and like what it means to be an author and then like the reality of being an adult in a interconnected global late capitalist scheme is like well that sucks 
Um, yeah. But we have enthusiasm about books and we have each other. And so it's yeah. one of the best things about having the experience that I have for Mangy Robot is being able to share it with colleagues. And be like, okay, so if mm-hmm. you're at this stage, here are some things that I, I might recommend like thinking about. You know, you could do X, Y, and Z. Like, oh, like you're waiting for edits on book two, and it's like six weeks until your your until book one comes out, and that that's your debut. Okay, well, here's some things to think mm-hmm. about. If you have lots of nervous energy, you could do X, Y, Z. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I, I was also thinking like, you know, it's great when we have enthusiasm and a couple of microphones and a Zoom subscription, and you know, go and go and make like like we were saying at the at the top like the thing i like most about making this podcast sometimes is just i get to be enthusiastic about things with people who i'm excited to talk to and like you know i i when i started this show i started a wish list of guests and then as i like continued i was like oh and this person and this person and this person and i was like oh yeah like Michael R. Underwood was an early entry on that yeah, list. That's very cool. Just because of um, you know your your Twitter presence and the genre knots books, uh, and then like going on and uh, a lot of the like even before we were in sort of the same overlapping circles, like the smart thoughts you have in terms of game design and like tabletop role-playing in general is like oh yeah like that's a person i want to be friends with that's a person who like would be great on a podcast yeah i i did a lot of podcasts from like 2012 to 2014 because i found very quickly that this format uh the kind of like Mm -hmm. two to four people like chatting about like field or fandom and things stuff like that is something that is really enjoyable to me and mm-hmm. i have i've been a like 95 percent remote worker since like <laughs> 2009 um because mm-hmm. the the sales job is was remote and then i was traveling and then i worked in an office right. for angry robot for like six months but all of my colleagues were in the uk so my, right. my, yeah, I was my office say. day was like in the office in the morning and then the afternoon, it doesn't matter because I'm like, I'm reading mm-hmm. doing sales analysis or whatever. And then, you know, since, since moving down here to Baltimore, it's just remote all the time. And so like being at conventions is my like not remote work time. And mm-hmm. my, my wife works in an office, so she's commuting every day. Um, so at home, it's just me and a little, you know, a log of a dog and he's not a great conversationalist, but right. he's very, he's very loving. Um, and so, like, podcasts and actual play and my home RPG group that all meets on Discord, like, those are my main social outlets, um, especially mm-hmm. to people who were elsewhere in the country because I, you know, had a big group of friends in Indiana and then moved to New York and then we moved to Baltimore pretty quickly. And so I am blessed to know people in lots of different places in the world, but then the ways that I can communicate with them are really limited. Um and mm-hmm. so I had yeah. to get used to like this format as something that is emotionally fulfilling um, for social. Otherwise, I'd just be gone, not here anymore. Yep. Ex-human. Um, and yeah. I think that served me in a really good stead in the pandemic um, in terms of like, okay, I already know how to do these types of things. 
and it's not as much of a disruption. And mm-hmm. what I'm hoping is that for the people that learned, like, oh, actually, I, you know, I like doing podcasts, listening to podcasts, you know, any number of things that like upside to surviving pandemic life, yeah. then become not a survival mechanism, but a a thing that people are excited or you know enjoy um, participating in. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because like we. I I run a Monster of the Week game more weeks than not, I, I would say. You know, at the start of the pandemic, it was very much like a every week we have game. And, you know, three years in, it's now like um, most weeks we'll have game unless something comes up. Uh, but my players are here in the house with me and... One player's in the South Bay, and one player is in North Carolina. And, you know, that just, like, was a thing that I was already sort of in the mindset of, like, okay, I know how to do all this remote stuff, partly from doing my podcast, partly from listening to how a lot of other people did their things. And I was like, okay, great, we can we can totally make this happen. And, like, you know, uh, half of half of the group was this was their first role-playing campaign Sorry. and you know one, one of my players is now in like uh, another RP group that is doing like a um, Tamora Pierce's Tortal oh, cool. role-play and you know are they using Blue Rose? I uh, I am not sure. I think so, but I will it's check. It's certainly with the thing that comes to mind. Um, but you know, not mm-hmm. is your monster of the week group um, on the same campaign still? It is still on the How same are campaign. Their doom tracks uh, looking? Nobody is on their same starting character. Oh, nobody's on like starting character. Okay, I was like when you when you said like the game was still going. I'm like, what about their doom tracks? What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. They. Um, one player almost maxed out their doom track and then uh they decided to be an npc uh and they still show up occasionally to cause mischief but they got a an artifact that allows them to just sort of cause mischief and leave uh in a way that's very helpful for me as the game master because it's just like okay here they are they're gonna do this one thing you see them for a second, you forget them. Let's it's move. always good to have a cue in the pocket, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it is, like, it's taught me a whole lot about the types of stories that I'm interested in telling in a way that, um, you know, I, I ran a couple of campaigns in my teenage years in, you know, this is uh, third edition era, Dungeons and Dragons, like, and I think I maybe ran like one session of uh, a Shadowrun third edition campaign, but I was mostly like, the games then were very dice focused and very like, you know, rules crunchy, especially, you know, if you're talking about like Shadowrun or, uh, you know, things of things of the early aughts era in terms of tabletop role-playing and 
then like I listened to uh, Taz Amnesty, uh, the Adventure Zone Amnesty, and they played this game Monster of the Week that I'd never heard of before, and I was like, oh, this is like this is narratively focused. This is you know player uh, like we you know we pl- maybe sometimes we'll have a session where one person rolls dice once and it's that sort of thing where it's like oh these are like it was a great outlet for me cuz i could you know explore a setting that i'd wanted to that i'd written a bunch of stories in and then never like been able to publish them and kind of realize like okay this isn't this isn't the time or place for me to write those stories but these ideas are still kicking around in my head. Yeah, it's uh, here you mentioned the like early two thousand RPG stuff. I was like thinking back because um, I worked in a game store all through college, so that was from two thousand nine mm-hmm. to two thousand five. So I was at the till as a lot of those were coming out, and something I was not really directly aware of until after when I was doing my grad work studying TTRPGs is that from like mm-hmm. 2002 2003 and definitely by 2004 that's where we're getting the like forge independent space where you're getting stuff like sorcerer dogs in the vineyard and like a lot of these mm-hmm. works that are the like the grand or great grand parent game to like the current big independent stuff like um apocalypse world place in the dark and all that kind of stuff um and it's yeah. like I have to imagine that some of that was because the 3.x boom was just getting a lot of people back into the field and driving a lot of sales. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, Gen Con was a particular type of thing and, you know, the RPG world was there. And then, you know, any press revolution and like, you know, there was the ability to kind of be that um, outsider scene within a big insider scene. Um, and then there's just been like iterations on that since. Absolutely, and then since then, you know, we've got drive through RPG. We've got, you know, the 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 confluence of everybody getting back into games because of the three point X and the start of self publishing and online marketplaces being big, and then just like I think that the the like proliferation of open licenses has done a huge amount as well because you know we we keep on seeing games coming out where it's just like you know this is under creative commons 4.0 share alike and it's like great you know i i wouldn't be able to necessarily sell a you know one page goofy ass little like star trek rpg or anything like that but i can give it away in a you know way where I don't worry about pirating it because there's no way to pirate something that is free. Yeah. Like and or yeah to a greater You have to work really hard to be a jerk to do that. Yeah. Um depending on the license. Yeah, like you you could go in and strip off all the watermarks and everything if you really wanted to, but like that seems like so much effort for absolutely zero like you're not going to be able to sell it yeah it's uh it's fun because i'll i've seen some game jams in the last couple of years that are like i made a game and i have a like open game license for it so i want to host a jam that is like here's this game i made and here's a framework i'd love to see what other people do with it um 
And like, mm-hmm. that's a great act of community building. And it's fun because it will let the people involved, like, okay, but it's, it's, uh, it's a really heavy, but in a good way prompt. It's not just here's a theme, mm-hmm. but here's a theme in a toolkit. Um, and like, that's yeah. a lot to start from, um, which is really fun. And then like, from the like business, business, business standpoint, it's like, okay, seven games using your system, all referring back to the thing that you made is like not bad marketing, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking like, you know, all of, all of the, um, powered by the apocalypse games, like everybody is referring back to, or, you know, blades in the dark, anything like that. It's like, you know, it, okay. I like this flavor of it. Let me see what the original is like. Let me, you know, let me, let me play in that space. Yeah. And I think, um, in, which again, like, just brings me back to friends at the table, and you know, all of all of the different hacks that they're playing, and all of the um, like design work that they're doing. the The spot I'm at in Partisan right now, they're playing The Tower, which is a, as far as I know, still unreleased game by two of the principal cast members of Friends at the Table, and it's fascinating to me to listen to them doing game design live and it's it's interesting because they're really conscious about using games to do specific things narratively like okay right tool Mm -hmm. for the job but then they use the same game in very different ways um across like between counterweight where they first used it and then in partisan where there's some Mm -hmm. similarity where for each of these it's like this is an interlude where we're going to focus on a character and we're going to give context. But then the a lot of the rest of like the of what those are, are used to do uh, is incredibly different. And I was kind of semi-active in the fandom by that time. The responses to mm-hmm. the second use of the tower were, were, I would have to imagine, very different than the responses to the first yeah. use because of like some of those differences. Uh, and then it's really fun to see after a couple of seasons their style or some of their perspective in how they go okay Mm -hmm. here's a system here's what we think is important about this but we're bringing our own creativity to the table to build a world for that system to then use the system to play in so it's a little bit of like Mm -hmm. the the creativity is going back back and forth in a interest in a really interesting um dialogue probably dialogic more than dialectic fashion um Mm -hmm which is is very cool and like that was a big inspiration for me and was part of why i really was pushing my you know they, they didn't uh, take much convincing but uh pitching my <laughs> my co-hosts um uh greg and brad uh, uh sorry <laughs> sorry uh greg and brad is the original pair of co-hosts when i joined the show uh that it was the two of them so now i co-host with brandon and with greg um pitching them on the idea of doing like let's make our own setting when we do this game and it gives mm-hmm. us all these freedoms and then like theoretically down the road three years if one of us wanted to like publish a novella in a setting that we had co-created there we're on much better footing than like well uh, i've written mm-hmm. a blades in the dark novella so i can ask john harper whether i can publish it 
uh, or I can file the serial yeah. numbers off. Now, John Harper is very cool, and so there's a very good chance that they would say, like, okay, here are the terms. Um, but yep. not having to worry about that, and I think the type of world building you get to do is just different. Um, like, Speculate did a Blades game where we brought a lot to the setting, um, but it was mm-hmm. it was a different kind of work. It was, oh, here's an interpretation of this, and here's a, like a different zoom-in version of this thing. Okay, what if... Um, what if like Fagin and that kind of like gang of urchins thing, but uh, mm-hmm. run by people who like genuinely care, and like that's the type of level yeah. of world building we're doing versus like here's how the cosmology works, here's how the history <laughs> operates over this, and here are the major major seven factions. You know, and it's like in different works, it's fun to be able to focus on different aspects of craft and things like that. Yeah, for sure, uh, and you know what you were saying about bringing different games in for different things um feels feels very uh feels very parallel to how we build craft as writers uh in like you know uh one of the things i think about a lot in this in that regard is during NaNoWriMo you'll have like writer dares to get people to like put words down when they're feeling stuck and it's like it's that same sort of like okay i am you know i have been externally set this challenge or i am internally setting myself this challenge to do a specific thing using you know this specific tool or whatever uh that's that's really neat i also just um i really like games as a way of figuring out what I want to do with things um one of one of the like my my 2021 NaNoWriMo win novel which I still haven't finished uh I got to this point where I just like was feeling kind of stuck and recently realized like oh what if I did this thing kind of loosely inspired by spoilery events in partisan that i'm not going to name and uh except they have to do with the friend uh and then what if i also brought in uh some of the like in order to figure out the next part what if i just used the game game anamnesis that uh they just played on uh a recent songfiel to like not necessarily to write the story by way of these journal prompts, but to, like, figure out where my player is in that case. Or, player, where my where my protagonist is in that case. And things like that, where it's just, like, I don't know, there's just so many cool tools. Yeah. Uh, something I, I think I didn't really realize until a few years ago, you know, like, in talking about, like, my history as a writer and process and things like that, that my... Mm-hmm my kind of paradigm in like the mage the ascension sense if you're an old white mm-hmm. person um which i suspected um like yep. we can sense our own um uh that my paradigm is like completely shaped by the fact that i grew up playing tabletop role-playing games like i i put mm-hmm. in hundreds of hours of playing ttrpgs before i put in hundreds of hours as a prose writer um and the, mm-hmm. and the same is probably true when you go to the level of thousands of hours. 
And so there's a lot for me where I have to get writing to get to know a character, like I would have to play mm-hmm. a character to get to know a character. And that I could write 10 pages of prose backstory, and it won't mean as much as one hour of trying to embody that character, inhabit them, and um, like interact with challenges uh, through them. And so that's something that I've just come to embrace as a writer. It's like, this is, this mm-hmm. is how my process works. I'm a very internal writer to the character. And then I've learned that some of how that operates is actually I'm withholding things from the audience that I want to share with the audience, where like there's mm-hmm. feedback loops that I'm experiencing, but I'm not putting on the page. And then I'm learning to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, uh, one tool I want to give a quick shout out to uh, that has helped me both as a GM and as a writer uh, is uh, a deck that I believe is going into its second edition sometime soon by uh, game designer Nathan Rockwood of Larsonist Designs called The Game Master's Apprentice, which is just, uh, it is kind of like an oracle deck, uh, but each card has all these tools that are super useful if you just need a thing to happen in a tabletop game, but that are also uh, have been hugely helpful to me to not fall down a Wikipedia hole when I get stuck in a thing, because I can draw a card instead and it will give me three names and a virtue and a vice and a catalyst and a location and some belongings and you know all the senses and so it's just like you know i i feel really grateful to have that tool in my tool belt uh as like as a game master as a writer to to not get stuck and like be aware of my own sort of uh i don't want to call them shortcomings because i think that my ability to deeply research things is very useful but it is not helpful when i'm trying to get words on a page um so do you do you know nathan through like the science fiction convention scene i've known nathan since oh yeah cool (laughs) uh yeah i like that's one of those wild things where uh we were in the same youth okay. group in uh, high school and had like a lot of uh, a lot of friends in common and went to a lot of the same uh, gatherings and then uh, very nearly went to college with him and uh, when I toured college stayed on his hall okay. so uh, yeah there's small yeah. world I, I am often on the same flight with uh, Nathan and his spouse to um, uh, to confusion in Michigan, like either to or yep. there, which is funny because uh, uh, they live not very far from me. But then I tend to see <laughs> the two of them most often at conventions because sometimes that's how life is. Um, that is sometimes how life goes. That... Yeah, and uh, his spouse also was co-editor with me of a recent. Uh, Quaker science fiction issue of the normally not fiction magazine Friends Journal. I did not know that. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, this is what happens when two people with one common purpose bully the editor on Twitter <laughs> mercilessly for years. Uh, 
You hear that? You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Bullying people on Twitter is good, actually. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I'm just sidebar imagining the tangent of the conversation that is like that gets into like current respectability discourse uh conversations oh my god and being like not today satan <laughs> not today satan that is that is for the clap cast that we do not permit produce <laughs> yeah. but something that you mentioned about like seeing how you work as a positive um really lines up with something mm-hmm. that i've been stuff i've been working on this year um a, a writer friend who I um, did Clarion West with back in 07, um, who writes as uh, Cassie Alexander, um, oh, uh-huh. mentioned taking a class at the Better Faster Academy um, with Becca Syme, mm-hmm. who's the author of the, like, uh, Dear Writer, You Need to Quit, or Dear Author, You Need to Quit. Like, there's a series there. Um, mm-hmm. And so Becca is a Gallup certified strengths coach. And so Gallup is this big business thing and they have their whole like psychometric system, but it's like they've done just absolute crap tons of analytics. So they've got a ton of data backing mm-hmm. them up. And part of that paradigm is this idea, as I understand it kind of through how Becca talks about it, that like the, these aspects of your personality that can be described in these ways these are superpowers or you can think about them as superpowers. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that no two writers are necessarily wired the same way is not a way of uh, indicating that one of, one of them is more the right, you know, proper writer than the other. It's that mm-hmm. your life experiences and, you know, a bunch of random factors and some not so random factors have mean that any given writer has to figure out what works for them. And that mm-hmm. kind of, uh, the way that popularity in the internet works has meant that the number of people who are regarded as authorities on like how to be a writer is like really limited. And Mm -hmm. the way that they do stuff may not work for a lot of people. And so this working on this strengths system that is like owned by Gallup, but then you can do do other stuff with and things like that has been really handy because for a lot of people, and I think certainly for me, it's a way of being able to reframe who you are and how you think about yourself um, in positive mm-hmm. and growth oriented terms of like, okay, yeah, the fact that I like hoover up information and love like playing new games and trying out new systems and learning new ways of organizing things like that is a, that is a useful thing that can be good in my writing. It can be good in helping me like be more successful at the other things in my life. And it is, it is not just mm-hmm. like being a pack rat hoarder of like, this is my new collectible card game system. I spent $80 on it when I was in college and played it for two months and then never again. Like that's not a waste. It is time that I spent right. developing both an interest and a skill that like continues to serve me. Um, and so like for, for any given writer and especially for, for writers that are listening to this, it can be really frustrating to hear people giving a, give advice and then like, well, that doesn't work for me. And it doesn't mean that there's anything mm-hmm. wrong for you. It just means that they may not have, that your brains may not work similarly enough for this to be beneficial to you. And um, the downside is you may have to keep looking. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that really resonates with me and it, uh, I think it it leads really well into uh, this blue police box just landed in the room, and uh, I was wondering if we could take a second to uh, step into this time machine. And uh, you have some really 
uh, I think really great words of wisdom uh, that I don't know if you wanted to necessarily would want to share with past Mike, but that I think would resonate with uh, a lot of people past, present, and future. Yeah, so like sometimes I do like coaching and like uh, other consulting mostly for writers to like help them kind mm-hmm. of have the kind of career that they want. And in doing that and in like working with people at Angry Robot, I, I came to this really firm belief that it's super important to know not just what you want to write, but what success as a writer means to you, what that looks like mm-hmm. when you dream about like the super successful version of yourself in 20 years what is that is that like awards is that bestseller lists is that like a barnes and noble full of people clapping as you read your next book is it you know Mm -hmm. you know standing up at the nebulas giving an acceptance speech like all of the different ways that are ways to be successful like you don't have to like speed run the whole thing you could have like specific things that mean something to you you can you know focus on being read more than selling and whatever those are mm-hmm. that's all fine and you are going to have then a guiding star to orient yourself so you can always ask when you're making decisions about what choices to make what projects to do what conventions to go to like is this thing is this effort is this decision going to help me to have the kind of career that i want because that then may help mm-hmm. you with analysis paralysis of like there's too many options uh, because I could do 17 different things with this one book and people are having success over here in this kind of way and that kind of way. And like, you don't have to have success that looks like anybody else's, but if you have a sense mm-hmm. of what you think will help you feel happy or make you feel like you have, like it's worth the time. Or if your goal is like, I need to feed my family, um, which is like mm-hmm. very solid, uh, like priority as a writer and can be very difficult. Uh, for reasons that involve capitalism and a whole different tangent. Yeah. Um, but like when I'm coaching um, writers, that's something I try to keep in the forefront because a lot of writers haven't necessarily crystallized that. They have like, mm-hmm. they have some like impressionistic dreams, but it can mm-hmm. be useful to give a, to, to find a little bit of specificity underneath that. And then hold mm-hmm. on to that so that you can do yourself a favor. Yeah, yeah. That um, I I feel like I've seen that from you on Twitter before, and it reminds me. It's like a a much more um, as writers we especially like when you're learning the craft you hear a lot of uh very short pithy things like show don't tell or you know all those sorts of things and it takes a long time sometimes to figure out what that actually means and this feels like it's a very um it's very much an expansion on the uh just like eyes on your own paper sort of thing where it's like you know i if i measure my success as being the next george rr R. martin fuck that guy one and two like i'm never going to or not never but like it's a long road to reach that place where i can you know be angering millions of fans by not 
turning out the books they think they deserve. Yeah, or um, being incredibly disrespectful as an award show host. Yeah, for instance. Hypothetically. Um, yeah, and yeah. like so much of what happens in the industry is not under our control. So mm-hmm. even within that, like goals that are more under your control, probably healthier. Yeah. Could could I honestly say that that is advice that I take one hundred percent? No, I would be lying. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, but like, you know, I uh, for myself, like I think about when I started this show. The reason I started it was. It was a show that I wanted to hear and nobody else was going to make it. And, uh, like, since then, my goal, my like, the modest goals I've set for myself for this show have been, like, you know, I can't, as a podcaster, you know, like, we can't actually control the numbers going up on the graph. Like, doing that is akin to reject a man's and will make you crazy. But... I can absolutely control like okay I'm gonna try to get Michael R. Underwood on this podcast yeah and what I found when we were doing Speculate as like the earlier version where it was more like a book club kind of thing Mm -hmm. making the show was fun because it meant talking with you know my friends and then talking with colleagues um, and peers Mm -hmm. and it helped them promote their work it helped me um, learn to be a better writer um, and so, like, a lot of these podcasts within the science fiction fantasy sphere are this, like, double positive thing where mm-hmm. the, the act of making the thing is beneficial on multiple le- levels in multiple ways because by making something and putting it into the public where everybody can engage with it and listen to it, you know, on their own time and you're not, like, putting it behind a paywall... Um, Yep. Then you are you are create you are creating slash sharing knowledge and material that then other people can build on, so that you know we can always be um, progressing the conversations where we can yeah you know ideally get past the point of having to rehab certain conversations. We can build on great ideas that have come before. Uh, people who are getting into the field can maybe like avoid some of the problems that we had to deal with. Um, Mm-hmm. And so that is really handy. And something I think about, uh, I think about with um, Twitch streaming games, is that if honest, like if as a you know seventeen year old, I mm-hmm. put out uh, like you know I texted my friends. I wasn't really texting when I was seventeen, but anyway, um, yeah. if I like if I said, hey, I'm going to be playing um, Elden Ring, um, you know, come over. Uh, you know, anybody come over if you want, you know, we'll pass around the controller, hang around, you know, have a couple beers or sodas or whatever, as age right. appropriate or whatever. And like three to five people came over, we'd have a great time. On Twitch, mm-hmm. three to five people is quote unquote low numbers or a stream that mm-hmm. no one is watching. Um, but that's just a scale question. Um, and right. Twitch for me is a way to share things that I enjoy and a way to be social and a way to like mm-hmm. it's those things and it's it's still content marketing but it's like content marketing uh-huh. where i own the channel so if someone comes in mm-hmm. and they're an, a total asshole i have way better tools to like deal with that than if i were like trying to like manage a hashtag on twitter or something um mm-hmm. and i think figuring out what's the way i can do x thing that will that will like uh, 
help me have the kind of life that I want is very handy versus mm-hmm. like, well, it seems like everybody needs to be on TikTok. I'm like, no. Life no. is very short to be on a social media that you hate. Yeah. If, if you want to be on TikTok, that's great. I love seeing some of my friends putting out, you know, both marketing material and just like videos of their cats on TikTok. I love that. Uh, Maya McGregor, who was just on the show, like their TikTok is almost exclusively Tara and Willow, and I love those cats and would die for them. Uh, and also recently a whole bunch of Sam Sylvester content, which again, great, love that book. Uh, but like, if you don't want to do TikTok, don't don't do TikTok. Don't do something that's going to make you unhappy, yeah. especially. Like if if you're working with a publisher and they're like, oh, we'd really love you to be on TikTok, uh, a, a legitimate response is, uh, which, um, which TikTok uh, content creation class are you enrolling me in and paying for? Mm-hmm. Which camera are you buying yeah. me? Yeah. How, uh, what... what uh resources are you giving me to learn to edit videos so that they look like I didn't just take them with a selfie oh, cam? Your, your social team has volunteered to edit um, edit my videos for me? Great. Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, uh, I am on TikTok, mostly shitposting if I am creating content, but mostly just consuming content. And like, uh, Hank Green did a video recently where he was talking about like the fact that he has an assistant who helps him with his TikToks and it's like yeah that's the you know sure Hank Green TikTok sensation but like you know I know that he's not doing it on his own and this myth of like you know the self-made self-made whoever is uh can be really harmful for people especially when they're just starting out yeah and I think you know the the broad category of content creator in the digital age mm-hmm. where uh, it's, it's, it's hyper visible but only part of that process is hyper visible like the the, mm-hmm. the end product is hyper visible um, you know I think about the like the twitch streamers who, st- who stream you know six eight hours a day five days a week Oof. and then put in almost as much time off camera doing all of the other things. Um, it's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. you're, you're working a 70-hour-a-week job um, doing this. And I think, uh, you know, TikTok creation and any of these things where, like, people are just working themselves to the bone trying to mm-hmm. uh, try to satisfy the algorithms um, because, like, those are, like, ways to be successful. Already be successful. Mm-hmm. Get very lucky. Pay some lots of people. Um, yeah, and like, so you know, I like wa- I like watching stuff on TikTok. I I think I could do good work on TikTok. I am very tired. Um, mm-hmm. I made concerted uh, t- decisions in the last few years, even pre-pandemic, um, but especially the last couple of years, to um, revisit my relationship to a lot of social media, where mm-hmm. I I had very little in the way of filters or boundaries. Um, mm-hmm. because I was trying to be everywhere and be in conversations and contribute and, and all of these things. Yep. And um, I just got uh, 
one too many instances of somebody coming into my mentions who I've never seen before and uh, accusing me of fairly preposterous things for the uh, for right. like a controversial stance of authors should be paid and things like that. But like Twitch, I have the more control there. Um, you know, in Discords and Slack, you'll have stronger like um, community standards and things like that. And I yep. think that is a broader conversation a lot of people on the internet are having in terms of where do they want to be, where do they want to put their time, you know, what what businesses do they want to basically be making material for because like mm-hmm. we're the uh, we're the data, not the customer for, you know, Twitter or Facebook yeah. and things like that. Um, and it's you know, as as writers and creators and anybody who's like trying to make a name in the public sphere, you have to like you're gonna have a different relationship to that than a lot of people. And I think it's really draining and a lot of folks um, just kind of run themselves ragged um, trying to do that because there aren't other clear pathways to success. Yeah. Oof. Sorry for being a downer. Here on Elon Musk's Twitter in 2022. We don't know. The, the I, I don't know if the deal has actually gone through yet or not or what's happening. Yeah. It's it exhausting. seems like there's been several ups and downs. And yeah. Uh, I'm just here hoping that we can lose him more money on his Twitter investment than we lost the people who invested $1.3 billion in Tumblr. I believe in the power of, um, like, resentful uh, Twitter users. <laughs> we can do it. I can I can pop off at the Twitter all day, every day, and lose that man value. Um, Mike, it's been just absolutely amazing having you on here. Uh, before we go... A few questions. One, uh, is there anything of your own that you'd love to promote here? Yeah, so uh, folks who follow me may have already heard this, but I am re-releasing my debut urban fantasy series um, this summer. My plan is to basically do one book a month until I then do a collection. So that is Mm -hmm. Geekomancy, Celebromancy, Attack the Geek, and then Hexomancy. Uh, These books are tremendously geeky urban fantasy where love there's so love much of pop culture is the magic system so i got a new cover for the first one and it's the protagonist with a glowing huge d20 as her magical orb and i love it that's so exciting uh, and those will be in paperback edition for the first time as well the first one is coming june 7th and then uh, they'll kind of trickle out after that uh, so that's the big upcoming thing i'm excited about fantastic uh and beyond that what are you i know we've just been being excited about things for an entire hour and 20 minutes almost now uh what are you super excited about right now uh in the media landscape in general that you'd love for uh people to know about yeah so i am actively playing and totally delighted by a game called Citizen Sleeper, which is Ooh, a yeah. um, computer role-playing game um, by Jump Over the Age and published by Fellow Traveler. And the this is a kind of dystopian space station survival RPG, and it intentionally mm-hmm. draws influence from independent TTRPG design. So there's clocks that you fill, um, 
you know, the breakdown on like you, you're rolling dice all the time. And depending on, you know, how high your die roll is, that impacts your chances of success. And it's a fun way. Uh, it's been really fun for me to see influence drawn really deliberately and consciously where it's not obscured mm-hmm. or obfuscated at all. Um, and it's got really gorgeous art and it does not try to do more than it needs to do which I think is really mm-hmm. fun and probably very essential in independent game design. Um, so yeah. I think that may even be on Game Pass for people who are Game Pass people. Um, and I recently read and want to keep suge- uh, keep recommending um, a, uh, sorry, a uh, rom-com series uh, called Dungeons and Dating, uh, which is a, oh. an all-queer um Maybe I would no, not necessarily rom com. It's like modern romance, and it revolves mm-hmm. around a gamer bar. So, like oh, the protagonists of the first book are one of the three co-owners of the bar and her new roommate, and it's like roommates to lovers. And so, there's two books out now. The third one is coming soon. It seems like there's going to be four or five, um, and mm-hmm. they're just absolutely delightful. Um, I le- really like reading, um, especially contemporary romance. Um, because mm-hmm. they're fun and they help make me a better writer. And it's really fun to find something that's like, okay, uh, pretty simpatico with this author in terms of how they talk about like things that they're really mm-hmm. into. And I hadn't seen, um, or there's some other like kind of geeky romances, but these are really fun. Um, so that the first one is called Strength awesome. Check, and the author is Catherine McIntyre. Fantastic. Well, as always, listeners, uh, links will be in the show notes. Uh, Finally, before we go, uh, Mike, where can our listeners find you and where can our listeners find you playing Citizen Sleeper? <laughs> um, so I'm on Twitter at Mike R. Underwood, which I mostly use for like signal boosting other stuff that I'm doing. I stream video games um, currently Wednesdays and Sundays at 1 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash turbo tango. Um, and then I do my actual play shows over at um, speculate where you can which you can find at speculatesf.com fantastic uh as somebody who occasionally uh joins in and lurks just because i love hearing my friends enjoy things uh i would strongly recommend if you are able to tune in to mike streams doing that uh and uh there are also a number of other wonderful uh, science fiction and fantasy authors who, many of whom you have heard on this show before, who also stream occasionally. Uh, I know Valerie Valdez is doing a Hades run right now. Valerie is scary uh, good at Hades. Always... Yeah. I mean, I, compared to how well I did when I poured, you know, 80 hours into that game, like, I am gobsmacked. It, it, like getting to Lerny, getting past Lerny in like ten runs, I don't think I had gotten past the Furies at ten runs. That is, that is wild. Yeah, uh, and also I do want to mention that uh, Karen Osborne is doing writing and editing streams on Twitch, which is just a really great place to hang yeah, out. Yeah, that has been has been very handy for me to get in extra sittings of writing. Um, with that mm-hmm. kind of social element that's been really cool. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's a really... It's one of those ways where it's like, 
oh yeah, I see you designed this tool for one specific thing, but we're going to do a lot of other things with it, and they're going to be great yeah, too. Yeah, it's like uh, the, the retweet wasn't made by Twitter. It was made by users. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. C- we are himself. both old enough to remember typing RT colon and then, you know, a username and fitting in as much of the tweet as we could. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute delight. All right, so we're going to stop recording and then keep talking about role-playing games for another hour. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Listeners, tune in next month when our guests will be, believe it or not, Sarah Gailey and Amanda Cook. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Lillian Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Mm-hmm.